This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Recode Decode has been nominated for Best Technology Podcast in this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. Cast your vote for Rico Decode at podcastawards.com slash app slash sign up before July 31st, or just tap the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the founder of the Mean Startup Movement, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Rico Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview from this year's Code Conference. Ezra Klein talked to entrepreneur and author Eric Reese, who used to be best known for his 2011 book, The Lean Startup. But recently, Reese may be better known as the founder of the long-term stock exchange, which the SEC recognized as a national securities exchange in May. You can find full coverage of this interview and everything else from the Code Conference at vox.com slash recode. But now let's go to the Phoenician Resort in Scottsdale, Arizona to hear Ezra's interview with long-term stock exchange founder, Eric Reese. Hello. It's great to be here. It's great to be kicking things off. And we're going to try to kick it off with something that is, I don't exactly want to say it's hopeful, but it, it can at least frame things in a bit more hopeful of a way. So I'm pleased to bring up to the stage Eric Reese, the author of The Lean Startup and the CEO of the Long-Term Stock Exchange. So something happened with the SEC. What happened? Yes. What did they do? Uh, yes, thank you. Hi. Um. <laughs> <laughs> This is, okay. this is code. Yeah. There's no time for pleasantries. Yeah, okay, fine. The Securities and Exchange Commission, you may have heard, was founded after the Great Depression. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we have been uh, at LTSE uh, applying for what's called a National Securities Exchange license uh, so that we can be into the same regulatory category as NYSE or NASDAQ. And on May 10th, that application was finally approved. So we are the fifth company in the United States that is authorized to operate a National Securities Exchange. So what's the point of a stock exchange? Yeah, I think people still have this image in their mind of a stock exchange as like the marble building with the animal in front and trading happens inside. But that hasn't been true for a long time. Uh, even the famous marble building is really, it's more of a TV set now and a museum. The servers are in New Jersey. <laughs> the actual trading happens electronically. And in fact, uh, every stock exchange in the United States is integrated into what's called the national market system, meaning that wherever your company lists, your stock still trades everywhere. And yet stock exchanges have this delegated grant of power from the government to regulate the behavior of managers and investors simultaneously. So they're actually a very important part of crafting the rules that govern the companies that govern how we all live. So our idea was to create a new one, which hasn't been done in a while, 
and to focus it not on trading stocks, but on creating a better experience for being a public company, one that would allow companies to think in more in generational terms, long-term, multi-stakeholder principles, and have that be part of every employee's lived experience. So let's back up on that for a minute. What went wrong with the ones we have? Why is there a need to have a different kind of stock exchange? Yeah, it's actually not the stock exchange's fault. You know, I wouldn't say that like stock exchanges caused the problem. It's more like we have a policy environment for companies that our grandparents would say makes absolutely no sense. So if you look at the, just the data about it, first of all, the number of public companies is in decline. Everyone knows this, right? That over the last 20 years, the number of public companies in the United States has been cut in half. And it's not like it just happened recently. It's just an inexorable decline. Everyone knows that? Like if we extrapolate that trend down, it's been a straight line down for the last like 22 years. If you just keep extrapolating that trend, it's like, what are we going to have? Like four giant mega tech companies that own everything and And, everything else will be private. And what's behind that trend? Is it consolidation? Is it uh, a lack of new entrance into the market? Of course. Yeah, exactly right. So, So companies are not going public if they don't have to. You've all noticed that, surely. The average time to IPO is up you know, dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, we have a lot more M&A activity than we used to have, so there's a lot more returns to consolidation, and you have the rise of private equity. So companies are being taken private faster than new ones are going public. So as a consequence of that, the general public is actually literally being left out of growth. It's, this is like a policy consequence that no one specifically chose to have. It's just an accident of the way that we've arranged things. It used to be our grandparents built a system for us where growth in the economy was financed by the retirement savings of ordinary people. And now we've switched over to a model in which the growth is being funded by oligarchs and petrostate dollars and other kinds of characters that, I mean, are, I know nothing against them, but does that really make sense? Like, is that a good idea for the industry, especially for the tech industry to say, hey, we build products that affect everybody, but the growth, the positive side of that success should be distributed only to an extremely narrow set of people? I don't think that's such a good idea. And of course, like five, six years ago, when we started working on LTSE, people thought, you know, well, this, it's not going to be a problem. You don't, this, is, this is like a, a solution in search of a non-problem. And they don't say that anymore. So but that's when, been helpful. That, Kara, has been helpful in that, uh, well, in when that way. When people think of the big tech companies, think of yeah. Google, you think of Facebook, these are publicly held companies. They yeah. are on stock exchanges. You can go buy stock. We cover the ups and downs of it daily. Yeah. What problem can you actually fix here? Well... It's going to be a challenge. I mean, this is a huge entrenched system that a lot of people profit from. So I don't, I, I really not a believer that we're going to overpromise that on, you know, now that we've got this approval boom, we're going to change the markets overnight. But I think there are very specific things that can be done uh, that can put companies onto a better and more sustainable path. So if you look at this next generation of companies, the next generation of founders, like what are they all about? What do they care about? What do they want? They tend to be very long-term in their outlook. They're thinking a lot about what their company is going to be like decades from now. Uh, a lot of the most visionary founders are thinking about what the next CEO is going to inherit from them already. Uh, they tend to be much more multi-stakeholder in their approach. You think about their employees, how, how the rise of employee activism and how much um, this new generation of employees like, demands something more in terms of a purpose-driven organization. And then they, they have a real desire to go back to that kind of early days of tech when, when their products were seen as healthy for people. And of course, what we need to do then is build governance systems. I know it sounds kind of boring, but like we're going to start off with governance systems. Sorry, that's just how it is. Governance systems that can actually help companies make the metrics of doing those things that we just talked about as important as their financial metrics. So when I back up on this, when I talk to people who are skeptical of the idea that short-termism is a major problem in the economy, you get a couple, you get a couple ideas here. One is that in 2018, 80% of the companies that IPO'd were non-profitable. Yeah. That's 
on the one hand, remarkable and strange. Yeah. But on the other hand, how short-term can the markets really be if 80% of the companies going into them aren't profitable? And if the one everybody's so excited about is Amazon, which like, looks at profits with a, a sense of distaste and almost like disgust. Like how share profits are taxed. What is the actual um, what, what is the actual evidence that short-termism is a problem in the economy? Yeah, there's two things I look at. First of all, let me just give you two seconds on my background. So I, I come at this not from a capital markets point of view. I'm not a professional investor. I was a tech entrepreneur my whole life. I mean, I was programming computers since I was a kid. And you know, when I got into Silicon Valley, like tech was just tech equaled good, right? So tech meant like we're doing something good, changing the world for the better. Uh, and I wound up you know, creating this thing called Lean Startup and that wound up taking over my life. And I wound up getting to work as a consultant, as an investor, as an advisor with companies of every conceivable size and scale, big public companies, governments, you know, two guys in a garage, everything up to hundreds of thousands of people. So the first like, thing that, that the evidence that I personally turn to about the problem of short-termism is the lived experience of every freaking middle manager in America. Just go talk to them. If you go work on the front lines of a factory, walk into a factory, walk into a, a, any kind of boardroom and listen to what the conversation is, do any of those people believe that their company is being successful because of the public markets or in spite of the public markets? And we all know the answer to this question. I, I'll just give you one, just one story. I was flying back from DC, where I have to go now regularly, and I was meeting with all kinds of poobahs and policymakers and people, and the conversation in DC was very much like, is there a problem? Maybe the problem will fix itself. Yeah, it probably will fix itself. No need to do anything. This is the most common thing that I heard. Uh, it's like the Fed will raise interest rates and then dot, 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 and then everything will go back to the way it was. This is the most common thing I heard. And it was right after uh, Virgin America had announced they were being taken over by Alaska Airlines. So all the tech people I knew were all mourning the loss of Virgin America. It's very sad. And I was checking in at the checkout counter and all the, there was like a bunch of baggage attendants and flight attendants and the check-in people all kind of congregating, discussing the merger just, just broke. And I just said, hey, how are you? How are you all feeling about it? And the person taking my ticket to check in my bag was like, you know, you know short-termism in the public markets, what are you gonna do? Once you get greedy, you go public and then the, all people care about is the financial metrics and they don't do what's right and screw the employees and whatever. And I was like, okay, so the baggage attendant understands this problem but the policymakers are like, is it really a problem? And there's like this bizarre inversion of expertise that we have in our society where the people who are living the problem understand it very well. If you've never been in that situation, just, just go, go see for yourself. It's very evident. Now, in policy circles, no one cares about that. They want to know, but what is the academic research evidence? But Thank good news. you. Thank good you news. for speaking to my people. No problem. Good news. The academic research on this topic is also extremely clear that like here's, an, here's a great study that they took matched pairwise companies that you know, were both private and in similar industries at similar scales, blah, 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 and one went public and one didn't go public. And then they watch what happens over time and they build a cohort of those and look at the data. And it's like R&D spending goes like this. They're going in lockstep and then one goes like this. Boop. And they go like that. Guess which one was public and which one was private. Investment in employees and uh, you know, employee well-being, guess which one is public and private, uh, inequality between senior leaders and the ground level employees, guess which? I mean, it's just, it's like clockwork, these behaviors. And, you know, at some point we just have to say as, a, as an elite group of people who have a lot of influence over this, enough. This isn't right. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this to hear more of Ezra Klein's live interview with Eric Ries. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. 
If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. So I am Jim Bank off of Vox Media, as I've always wanted to be. Yeah, and we're like you're having a nice we, life. We, it's wonderful. It's thrilling. Every day is a party, and we're thinking of going public, which is not something I'm actually announcing. <laughs> what would be different between being on the New York Stock Exchange and the long-term stock exchange? How would my lived experience as a CEO of a public company be different? Sure. So let me say some things that would not be different, just as important for people to understand. First of all, um, the liquidity in your IPO will be the same. The stock still trades on all the same places it trades today, so you're not sacrificing anything. And the rules are completely compatible, such that you could even dual list, Jim, between NYSE and... LTSE. You don't have to just pick one or the other. So we've tried everything as possible to de-risk, make it as easy as possible for people to do the right thing. But ask CEOs today who have taken their public company recently. In fact, I bet you're going to have some on stage. Someone actually ask them this question. What's the biggest difference you've noticed in your lived experience from when you were private to when you were public? The answer you will get if people are being honest is, I've asked this question hundreds of times. The answer is always, gosh, now everyone's looking on their ticker to see what the stock price is today. Every employee has these short-term stock options. They're like a receiving antenna from this incredibly noisy nonsense. So imagine that you could present to employees a different view of the stock price, where you could say, hey, listen, let's zoom this out and look at what really matters. For example, did you know that although the stock price is down 10% today, none of our long-term investors have sold? So guess what? Nothing happened. Your net worth did not actually change today, especially if you combine that, for example, hypothetically speaking, with much longer-term compensation instruments for managers. So we've tried to embody a variety of reforms along these principles of long-termism, multi-stakeholder, you know, good for society. But, but what is your power over this? Yeah, so... I mean, I can, you can tell your employees whatever, I mean, not whatever you want, their rules, but... Well, that's actually the but, issue. But this is a key thing. Like, what... What power does a stock exchange have to change a company's behavior? Yeah, so Matt Levine has this great, I'm sure many of you know his, his column, great line that today everything is securities fraud. Like securities fraud is like the one crime that corporations can't commit. So the key to corporate reform is to have companies make binding pledges to do things that violating those pledges would be securities fraud. That's, that's the power of a listings body. So stock exchanges are standard-setting bodies, but the standards have, generally speaking, been lowered in order to drive more trading volume. So we've tried to build an exchange with a dis different business model that's not all about trading, where we can actually enable companies to say, yeah, we actually will pledge 
to do the right thing in the following ways. And we can get into the board governance and the employee compensation and the disclosure and the, you know, the beat and raise game and all this stuff. I don't know how much time we have to get into the legal minutiae. It's a little boring. You can read our SEC filings. They're hundreds of pages long. If, you need tro if you're having trouble sleeping, uh, you can read them yourself. But those pledges are serious if you make them in the context of a listing standard. So that's the reason why we think having companies go public on an exchange that is dedicated to this matters. So give me an example of a pledge that a company might make that would then become securities fraud to violate. Sure. So um, hypothetically, now I have this newly highly regulated financial institution that I, <laughs> that I lead, so I've got to be a little careful what I say. Um, but just hypothetically speaking, one idea under consideration you could do would be to do something like say, look, there are certain compensation instruments that we know, they're like the toxic waste of exec comp. You talk to long-term asset owners, we have many of them in our coalition, you say, what drives you crazy about how companies are run? I met a guy once, he said to me, I'm the person whose job it is to receive the call from investor relations that the CEO needs a new plane, so we're doing this one-time, one-off bonus thing that I know it doesn't make any sense, but we're just doing it, and what are you gonna do about it? You're in an index, you have to own our stock anyway. Ha ha. So, there are certain kinds of companies, and if you talk to managers and you say, hey, I noticed that your company like, completely destroyed all of its R&D this year, like around November 30th, what was going on? We all know what it was. The CEO or the CFO, somebody had an EBITDA bonus that year, and by end of year, we have to hit certain targets, and if we're not on track for that, like, God help us. It's, it's just absolutely destructive of company value creation. So you could pledge to say, we are not gonna use those compensation instruments. Our executives will be compensated only out of longer term, more value aligned uh, instruments. We're going to, another pledge you could make, we're gonna reward our long-term investors. We're gonna know who our long-term investors are and then we're gonna reward them for being long-term partners to us and, and, and on and on. So each of those pledges, each of those like operational mechanics, it's a step in the direction of, like I said at the beginning, making the kind of stakeholder metrics, the, the long-term value-creating, culture-oriented metrics as important as financial metrics. So when I talk to the folks who study corporate behavior, they place a lot of this on culture. Yeah. They place a lot of this on the idea that, number one, CEOs and upper management have a different idea of what they owe their workers, what they owe their um, communities than yeah. they did 50 years ago. That's, there is a different right. market for CEOs, a more generalist market. Um, you were just talking about the, the moment where all of a sudden the CEO has another offer on the table. There's not this kind of loyalty. Yeah. That we're not seeing a problem of stock exchange structure, of which many of these companies were on the NYSE or yeah. the NASDAQ yeah, in these right. periods. That we're seeing a cultural problem. Mm -hmm. First, I'm curious how much you agree with that. But second, what are the cultural tools one has to change that? Yeah, well, this goes back to my work you know, on Lean Startup. People, people who, who study innovation and like management theory, like the evidence is super clear that culture eats, there's a shot, culture eats X for breakfast, but for all X, culture eats it for breakfast. So like the end of the day, what is culture? Culture is the behavior that managers do when they're not being told specifically what to do. When they have discretion over their action, either because nobody's looking or there's no metric for it or just they have the power to do what they want, culture is what determines that. And uh, you know, culture is everything in companies. But my experience having helped a lot of companies transform uh, and having built a lot of new companies and helping them like, create a new culture is that culture can be changed through material actions. It's not this like, weird intangible. Incentives, the process choices that we make, the public commitments that we make, those really do shape culture. Not to keep going back to the academic research, but look who I'm sitting next to. Uh, it's important to think about like, this evidence that managers, and especially CEOs, they really, boards especially, 
They want to be seen to be doing a good job. That's actually an incredibly powerful incentive, especially given that many of the people involved are already independently wealthy. And so the extra money they're going to make from whatever they're doing like, has no actual real effect on their life in any tangible way. But you know, they see it as a scorecard. They see it as like a, a way of validation and winning. Why do all these billionaires like, write books? Why do they go on TV and run for office and do all this additional stuff that's designed to get them adulation and praise? You know, you've got some of them here, so you can just ask them. But I think a lot of it has to do with the idea that people want to be seen to be doing a good job. So a lot of this is not actually about the mechanics of a stock exchange and, you know, all the, like, wonky stuff that we talk about. A lot of it is simply saying, look, for the long-term-oriented investors who really care about this issue and the CEOs who want to be seen to be their advocate and ally, can we create a way for them to actually be seen to be doing a good job and to say, in this market, in this place, in this time, in this year, we're going to change what it means to be a good CEO, change what it means to be a good manager, to be someone who actually takes care of their people, that has a positive impact in their community, and that actually creates value for the long term. Otherwise, we're all in big trouble. So I'm curious how the ideas of the exchange connect to the ideas of lean startup. When I was starting Vox, uh, I went around and talked to investors, and actually a couple of them, like, they, they shoved the lean startup <laughs> in my hands. And to, at, at the risk of oversimplification, there's a very heavy emphasis in that book on tight measured loops. Hmm. The ability to say, okay, we tried this, we validated it this way, and now we're gonna yeah. move. Yeah. And something that I found um, when I was editor-in-chief of Ox was that there were a lot of things I cared about that I couldn't measure. Mm -hmm. And that I could take us in directions that would violate our values if I was too dogmatic about only managing what I could measure. Yes, that's absolutely and, right. And so I'm curious how you think the, uh, the, the cult of measurement and metrics and, and, and managing against metrics connects or conflicts with short-termism. Yeah, this is a really interesting paradox, and I, I, I had to write a whole second book to try to resolve it, which you can all go uh, out and read if you want. Uh, if you want the 300-page version of the argument, but I'll give you the short version. You would think that in a company that was intensely short-term, metrics-driven, quarter-to-quarter, like everything is buttoned down and highly disciplined, that such a company would go fast at everything it does. But if you actually study companies, you notice that those behaviors actually slow everything down. They become bureaucratic and slow. Why? Whereas the companies that have a reputation for going the fastest, right, the, the worldwide cycle time leader, someone like Toyota with Toyota Production System, they have this incredibly long-term oriented philosophy that you would think would make people go slow. Why is that? I think the resolution of the paradox is as follows. If, you have, if everything has to be measured quarter to quarter, if you only can do the things that you can measure, then there's two kinds of projects in the world that you need to do. There's projects that fit nice and neatly into the one quarter boundary and can be measured in one quarter, and then there's other. But we know we have to do some other projects. Like we need to build, implement a new IT system. Uh, we're gonna do Salesforce, not sponsor, is it? We're gonna do a Salesforce implementation or pick your favorite IT vendor. Every company I meet is either in the middle of creating, like adapting to, or unwinding their Salesforce deployment. So, and not, that's not to pick on Salesforce. That's true for almost every IT vendor. There's just always one of these monster IT projects going on at any given time. Some of you have lived through it, maybe? Okay. Now, that's a clearly an other. We can't implement Salesforce in just one quarter. But then, in, if it's an other, how do we hold people accountable for doing a good job? Most managers are like, hey, I got an idea. If I can figure out a way to move the accountability for my other project out a year or two, I can probably get promoted out of this job before the thing ever comes due. 
And we won't get into the, the economic, like the way we allocate resources and then entitlement funding, and this is a whole other part of my life, but this is how companies are structured, where budgetary decisions ultimately make things political, they make things slow and bureaucratic, and it's this consequence of not having a way to hold people accountable to the things that really matter. Now, this is true in the tiniest startup up to the biggest enterprise, that Metrics are there, lean startup, iteration, minimum viable product, pivots, all that stuff, it's there to support vision, not to replace it. The purpose is that when you're in that like flat part of the hockey stick with something new, we need to find ways to figure out what are the leading indicators of future growth that help us know that we're on the right track. And that's why we say lean startup is a scientific theory, right? That it's, it's trying to help people with a hypothesis. If you don't have any hypothesis, just like, well, I'll just throw whatever at the wall stick, do whatever will make the metrics go up, you'll be selling pornography in no time. But that's not really where you wanna wind up. So now to connect this back to public markets and how we hold companies accountable and, and the kind of the, the bigger picture, we have to create a framework for companies to say here are what we believe are the leading indicators of our future growth so that investors can be well-educated, because today, here's what happens. Usually, a company says, hey, we're gonna do this big new initiative, and it's gonna cause all this growth, you know, blah, 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 uh, one year from now, two years, whatever it is, and then dot, 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 time elapses, and the growth didn't materialize. Now, for an investor, there's two possibilities. One, maybe the company did not competently execute the strategy, and so I gotta get out of that stock. These guys are terrible. Or maybe they did competently execute the strategy, but it was just the wrong strategy. Going into China is not as easy as it seemed on paper at our headquarters in wherever, you know, town X, USA. But we both thought it was a good idea at the time. It was competently executed. And actually, this is the moment of maximum learning that we could use to pivot in a new direction. But how many public companies are actually set up to pivot rather than just to you know, fire whoever made the, the supposedly bad decision? So we have to recapture that ability to learn and adapt and iterate even in our larger companies or they're not gonna be adaptive enough to survive the 21st century. You've talked a bit about the need for multiple stakeholders. Yeah. And the, the sort of broad view of this whole space is that um, companies have become too responsive to markets, to investors, yeah. and not responsive enough to their communities, their workers, the public, et cetera. Yeah. Um, there are other ideas out there to try to bring back multi-stakeholder approaches. Elizabeth Warren has put out this co-determination idea to yep. put workers on, on public boards. Are there other things that, that, that you see? I mean, what do you think of Warren's idea? But what do you think are the ways we can attach companies to, to, more, to more stakeholders so they're able to make other kinds of decisions without it seeming like a violation of the people they're meant to serve? Yeah, we have to, we have to pick discrete mechanisms that actually share power and prosperity with the people who are affected. Like, it's easy to see in the case of employees. Yeah, employee representation on boards. Like, in the tech industry, at least, we do things, like, we have pretty much a universal practice of relatively long-term equity ownership for employees. But then, why doesn't that extend to our gig economy workers? The same logic of wealth creation that makes someone an employee owner should make them a, I won't say any specific company's name, gig worker equivalent owner. But you can all see why that's totally logical. Why isn't that considered obvious? Like, so again, that's like, that's, maybe that's a cultural thing nobody's thought about it, but actually having like talked to a lot of those companies, a lot of it is just like, well, what is the mechanism by which you would do that? Our securities laws make that illegal today. So what do we do about that? But then you're like, well, what if we actually thought of a creative solution to that problem? To, um, you know, I, we already talked about board structure, but like most boards, most public company boards today become all about audit and compliance. 
the actual product strategy is often completely absent from the discussion. But like, that's not an intractable problem. What about a board committee tasked with long-term multi-stakeholder strategy setting? What about assigning each board member to one stakeholder that they would be responsible for advocating on behalf of? There's a great new book out called uh, The Enlightened Capitalists. Anyone seen this book? It's dense. It's like 400 pages of case study after case study of people trying to reform capitalism over the last 150 years through the kind of mechanisms we're talking about and failing. Uh, and it's basically like they're always, you know, every, everything is totally doomed. Uh, and it's actually a very helpful book for those of us that actually want to reform the system because we have to look at these kind of half-hearted measures that people have tried in the past and see why they were not holistic. They didn't involve employees and managers and investors all aligned. So just like one example, there's one devastating story in the book about a founder of a company that had a really different culture. And you know, I, I happened to have been an intern there years ago when I was a kid. Anyway, it was a company that founder had led for 40 years. And then you know, late, late in his life, there was a boardroom coup. Uh, they kicked him out of the company. They forcibly took the company uh, public. And on his deathbed, he laments the fact that it didn't occur to him to insist that the board members shared his vision and philosophy of running the company as a condition of board service. So like, we could view that as a depressing story of this poor guy, but all like, I, I was like, hey, I'm like a collector of corporate governance ideas. I was like, hey, how about we make the board sign a pledge? <laughs> Every board member in the selection process, you have to say that you support this multi-stakeholder way of running the company. You have an obligation to continue it. And for the next generation of founders, that's a really powerful idea, because I always ask them, when you're dead, you know, except for the ones working on the, on the immortality startups, <laughs> everybody else is planning to die and have their company outlive them. So what will the next CEO do? And so like, we, if, we're not going to have a, a hereditary monarchy. right? It's, most of these companies are not going to inherit their dual-class emperor-like control and pass it on to their kids to run the company. So then what's the plan? So yeah, there's like a lot of ways to have a foundation be involved in governance and have founder vest control in that. That's a really good one. Obviously, uh, this idea that there can only be like the founder 10x voting class and then everybody else, the peons with no voting power, like that makes no sense. We should have more of a constitutional republic where there's citizens of the republic who have voting power and people can become citizens and then, then we can have different rules for the tourists who are just trading in and out of the stock. So there's a lot... There's a lot, I guess what my message for everybody would be, this is not an intractable problem. This problem was not handed down to us on stone tablets that it's always been this way. Our grandparents would be looking at us and saying, what the bleep have you done with this beautiful system we built for you? Like we gave you the tools to reform it and change it if you want. We have to actually take them up and do something about it. We're going to take another break now, but we'll hear more from Eric Ries, the founder of the Long-Term Stock Exchange, after this. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
All right, all you enlightened capitalists, it is your turn. We have a microphone right there. Folks should come up uh, and ask Eric their very best questions. Yes, sir. I don't know about a very best question, but... There's a lot of pressure on you, know, you right now. With 110 outside, it's the best I can come up with. <laughs> Eric, as a former economist, I really like what you're doing. Thank you. Um, and I have a lot of friends on Wall Street who manage money who complain bitterly amongst themselves about how they know they have to do things they don't want to do simply because the alternative means outflow of capital. Can you see a way that a long-term stock exchange can actually penalize short-term investors? Ah, uh, see, this is a trick question. Uh, no, we would never penalize anybody. That's, that's ridiculous to suggest such a thing. However, I'll tell you, I just, I'm going to answer your question with a story. I was once having lunch. So, so when I first, I conceived this idea for long-term stock exchange in my book, which came out in 2011. So I've been working on this for at least nine years. Uh, and I, I first, I didn't know anything about public markets. Capital formation was a phrase I'd never heard in my life before I became CEO of a stock exchange. Um, and I was going around, everyone I knew said, hey, could you teach me about economics? Could you teach me about stock exchange? You know anybody who invests in public markets? I would talk to anybody. And one day I found myself in New York and I was having lunch with two guys. One guy ran a, a quantitative trading firm and one ran a long-only fundamentals hedge fund. And so the, the quantitative guy was bragging to me that he had managed to get his average holding period for a public equity of his traders down to 10 minutes. So like if he had to vote a proxy, that's like you go fishing and you pulled up a boot. It's like, oh, for God's sake, my 10 minutes of ownership overlapped with a governance thing? Like, this is terrible. The guy sitting next to him who was in the long only fund, he's like, that's interesting. Uh, we haven't done any trades this year. We, we bought all the companies we liked last year and we think they're all so pretty good and we didn't see anything, we think everything's overvalued, so we just, we haven't traded at all. And he was looking at him like, you didn't, what do you do? You're sitting around in your office, what do you people do? And I said to the guy, and he was really like upset at this conversation, because the long, long guy and I were obviously on, very much on the same wavelength. And finally I was like, listen, just do a hypothetical for me. Imagine a day in the future, you're having a really good day. You engineered a synthetic short against a company and now the stock is down 10%. And he was like, oh yeah. You can see he was like, that is a good dog. He's like, oh, tell me more about this story. I'm like, okay, do you realize that the next day, 10,000 managers who work at that company are now running around like chickens with their heads cut off trying to devise a new strategy for the company because it's a crisis. And he was like, what are you talking about? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I was like, well, they work. He's like, why would they do that? He's like, well, that, from their point of view, the market is down and there's a problem. It needs fixing. He's like, that's so stupid. When I short cattle futures, the cows don't care. So there you have it. To him, governance is not something he wants to be involved in. This is, companies are just a number on a screen. He could care less. So it actually, it's not penalizing him to say he shouldn't have a role in governance. He was like, hallelujah. That's not my thing. Let me just play my numbers game and leave, you know, leave, leave the governance to somebody else. Our world is run by sociopaths, yes. <laughs> That's not news, is it? We didn't, we didn't just break news, did we? There. Jesus. Yes. Hi, my name is Nat Karras. I work with IBM. We're investing a lot in artificial intelligence, catching a lot of flack for it. Um, yeah. I have a question about how the, your long-term stock exchange addresses all of those issues. They're very important. And just to give you some background, I worked at um, Apple from 2001 to 2015. And the first three years I worked there, the company was described as beleaguered. We had uh, two, three years of terrible earnings. 
We caught flack every quarter for investing massive amounts of R&D. Thank God our CEO at the time, Steve Jobs, said, F you, I don't care, I'm investing the money. Yeah. And you fast forward, that's how things like iPhone happened. How does your long-term stock exchange help with all the ales that you've talked about? Because we don't want necessarily government regulation I mean, yeah. we are a capitalist society, so how does, how does that address the ales? Yeah, so I can't answer that question in any kind of short way because I have to use regulatorily approved language, and so let me try to answer it you know, as best I can in a, in a, short, uh, in a short way. Um, imagine two different companies that you know, were otherwise similar, but one's making, like, kind of really doing the right thing and investing in R&D, and the other is just basically setting money on fire and calling it R&D. From their financial reports, how could you tell the difference between these two companies as an investor? Like, this is not a hypothetical. These are real, <laughs> I happen to know such companies. I happen to have read their quarterly reports. And like, I mean, it's extremely difficult from the financial metrics that we use to have any idea who's actually making investments for the future in the long term. The definition of R&D spending under GAAP accounting uh, is not helpful. Can we say that? So you have to like know how to read the footnotes of the quarterly reports and you can sort of figure it out. Before. But imagine if when you made your quarterly report, front and center, right there on the front page, is like the most important things that investors need to know about whether this company is in fact making long-term investments or not. Like, does anyone really feel like the company that is setting the money on fire is gonna, gonna thrive and do better in that environment than one that's run by Steve Jobs? I say no. Eric Ries, y'all. Thank, Thank you, you all very much. Thank you. Thanks again to Eric Ries for joining Ezra Klein on stage at Code. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Erica America. And my producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.